Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. I won't waste your time with any extended intro shenanigans, so let's get to our main discussion. Over the course of the last few weeks, we've been working our way through the narrative of chapters 1 and 2, but what I'm wanting to do for this week and next week is I'm actually wanting to hit the pause button on our progression through the narrative, and I actually want to take a moment to look at Matthew's use of Old Testament prophecy in these chapters, because what we see here is that Matthew cites five different prophecies that Jesus is fulfilling, or that the events around the birth of Jesus are fulfilling in these first two chapters, and he's citing these as crucial elements that demonstrate that Jesus has the valid credentials that he needs to be the messianic king. And I think that it's worth our time to actually just kind of slow down a little bit and look at how Matthew uses each of these prophecies because he says that Jesus fulfills them, but there's a lot of skeptics who have pretty reasonably voiced their concerns over the fact that a lot of these prophecies, when you examine them in their original context, don't really seem to be overtly messianic. And I think that a lot of the times, very well-meaning Christians kind of discount that and they try to really make it work so that Matthew uh, isn't wrong here. And I don't think Matthew's wrong here, but I do think that there is more nuance going on here than a lot of people are quick to admit. And so what I want to do is I want to be very thoughtful and grounded and biblical in all of this. And I actually want to go back and I want to examine these prophecies in their original context. And then I want to compare those to the context that we find in Matthew. And I want to wrestle through whether or not Matthew is interpreting these correctly or what he might be doing with these prophecies and what message he might be communicating. Because I see, I think that sometimes, and we're going to see this even in this video, sometimes the message he's communicating might be slightly different than the message that we typically think whenever we read these prophecies out of context. And so I think that knowing the Old Testament and being more familiar with that will actually be very helpful in helping us understand what exactly Matthew is accomplishing through the prophecies that he's citing in these early chapters of the gospel. And this is going to continue onwards. And so, uh, like, it's not just going to be in these first two chapters. He's going to cite prophecy after prophecy throughout his gospel. And so I think that it's good for us to go into this with a very sober-minded approach. And so in the first two chapters, we see that Matthew cites five prophecies. First off, Jesus is born of a virgin. Secondly, he is born in Bethlehem. Thirdly, he is delivered from Egypt. Fourthly, there is weeping in Ramah whenever the children are killed. And fifthly, he is called a Nazarene. And what I've done on this slide is I have highlighted the fact that Matthew uses certain terminology to indicate that he is about to quote a prophecy and he uses the same sort of formula to indicate that something's going on here, right? And so in the first one, you read, in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. In the second one, you have, for this is what was written by the prophet. Thirdly, you have, in order that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Fourthly, then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And fifthly, so that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled. So Matthew typically has this way of referencing the prophets and being fulfilled. The only one that kind of sticks out there is the second one. And that's because if you actually read it in context of the Gospel of Matthew, it's not Matthew who's actually citing this prophecy, but rather it's the scribes and the priests who are citing it. But we're still going to address that. And so in this video, what I want to do is I want to look at just these first three prophecies of these five, and then next week we're going to look at the fourth and fifth one just so that we have a little bit more time to break those down. And so I want to look at the prophecies about Jesus being born of a virgin, which is from the book of Isaiah, 
him being born in Bethlehem, which is from the book of Micah, and him being delivered from Egypt, which is in the book of Hosea. And this whole video is going to be us looking at these in their original context, comparing that to Matthew's context, determining whether or not these are messianic, and figuring out what exactly Matthew is trying to accomplish in his gospel. And so let's start off with this first one. Let's talk about the prophecy about the virgin birth. So if you go to Matthew chapter 1 verses 22 and 23, after Jesus has been born, or actually it's after the announcement of Jesus' birth to Joseph, this is what we read. Now all this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. What's being cited here is Isaiah chapter 7. And what I want to do is I want to actually go back to Isaiah chapter 7 and we're going to start at the beginning of that chapter and we're going to work our way through it and then we'll be able to kind of just talk about what exactly was being communicated in this passage and see whether or not Matthew is correct whenever he interprets this as being messianic. And so let's start Isaiah chapter 7 verse 1. Now it happened in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. So just for some context right off the bat, this is around probably 735 BC. So this is about 800 years before Jesus was born, or well, 700, 800 years before Jesus was born. And here we have two kings from the northern kingdom of Israel and a northern kingdom of Syria or Aram. Um, they are coming down and they are going to try to wage war on the people of Judah because they're trying to force them into an alliance to go against the Assyrians. When it was told to the house of David, saying the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, Ephraim is another name for Israel, his heart and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So the king of Judah is terrified whenever he hears that these people are coming to wage war on him. Then Yahweh said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Sher Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, to the highway of the fuller's field, and say to him, Take care and stay quiet, have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands, on account of the burning anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Because Aram, the Eph and with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia, has counseled evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it, and make for ourselves a breach in its walls, and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, It shall not stand, nor shall it happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within another sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered, so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you do not establish your faith in Yahweh, you surely shall not be established. And so the king of Judah is absolutely terrified at this looming threat from Aram and Israel. And so Isaiah is sent to the king of Judah and says, Hey man, you don't need to be afraid of these two guys. God is going to take care of them. All you need to do is make sure you are trusting in God. That's what he's saying at the very end. If you do not establish your faith in Yahweh, you surely shall not be established, right? So trust in God. He'll take care of it. You don't have to worry about these two guys coming to you. Then Yahweh spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from Yahweh your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. So he says, ask for a sign. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. So God himself asks Ahaz, what sign would you like me to give you to indicate to you that I am with you and that you don't have to fear Israel or Aram? But Ahaz said, 
I will not ask, and I will not test Yahweh. So Ahaz, who is a very wicked king, and he's not a great guy, he responds as if he is righteous and as if he is pious. And he says, oh, I would never ask God for a sign because I don't want to test him. Really, what Ahaz is doing here is he doesn't want to ask for a sign because if God gives him that sign, then he acts actually has to trust God and not trust in foreign powers and trust in stuff like that. And so Ahaz is trying to weasel his way out of this, but he's trying to act very pious in his attempts to thwart God's plans. And then Isaiah responds and says, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? So Isaiah gets on to Ahaz because Ahaz says, I don't want to test God. But Isaiah says, well, you're testing God's patience right now. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. We're going to talk about more about this in just a second, but Isaiah says that God's going to give him a sign anyways, and in Hebrew, the word for virgin here is Alma, and then later on, whenever it's translated into the Septuagint, which is Greek, it is the Greek word Parthenos. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But this is the sign that Ahaz is going to be given that indicates that God is with them. You'll call this kid's name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey in order that he will know to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Yahweh will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house, days which have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. So right here, Isaiah says, here's the sign that God is with you, and that's going to indicate to you that you don't have to fear Israel or Aram. There's going to be this virgin or this young woman, as we'll talk about, who gives birth to a son. And when that son is born, before he's even old enough, Israel and Aram, they're not going to exist anymore. They're going to be destroyed. And you'll realize that God was in charge of this the whole time. However, here's the issue. Whenever you see that these guys have been destroyed before this son is even old enough, that's also a sign to you that you're going to be judged. Because since you decided not to trust God, and since you decided to test God and test his patience... God's going to send somebody worse to destroy you. You don't have to worry about Israel and Aram. Instead, you have to worry about Assyria. And the rest of that chapter is Isaiah detailing the fact that Assyria is going to come in and destroy the people of Judah or really threaten the people of Judah. Ultimately, they're going to be spared from that destruction as well because of Hezekiah later on. Uh, and then Babylon's going to come in. But the threat of Assyria is going to be much more severe than Israel and Aram ever posed. But here's the issue with this. If you go to the very next chapter of Isaiah, it seems like this prophecy is fulfilled. Read it. Then Yahweh said to me, Take yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters concerning Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Then I, this is Isaiah, then Isaiah drew near to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Notice that the language is very similar to what we read in Isaiah chapter 7. Then Yahweh said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And so in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah says that there's going to be this woman who gives birth to a son, and before the son is old enough to know good and evil, Israel and Aram are going to be destroyed. And then, in the very next chapter, Isaiah has a child with his wife, and that child is prophesied to be the child where, like, it, like if you just keep reading the thing, he's eventually called Emmanuel as well. But this child, before he is old enough, before he can even say, my father or my mother, Israel and Aram are going to be destroyed. And so the question becomes, 
is this about the Messiah or is this simply about Isaiah's kid? And so let's look at the context just summarizing it. First off, in 735 BC, Isaiah promised the wicked king Ahaz that so long as he trusted in Yahweh, he needn't fear Aram and Israel who were seeking to invade from the north. Secondly, Yahweh offers to give Ahaz a sign confirming that he is still with Judah, but Ahaz, feigning righteousness, says he would never test God. Thirdly, this is the main point, Yahweh gives him and all the house of David a son nonetheless. The Alma, right, the young woman, the virgin, will give birth to a son who will be a sign that God is still with Judah, Emmanuel, God with us. Before the son reaches maturity, Aram and Israel will be destroyed, right? So that is what the main emphasis of this prophecy is. When this child is born, before he is old enough to discern between right and wrong, Aram and Israel will be destroyed. Fourthly, however, God promises a greater threat is coming. This is the threat of Assyria. And then this prophecy is seemingly fulfilled when Isaiah's young wife gives birth to a son who is called Emmanuel and described in similar terms. This seems problematic for us. Because right here, it seems like we have both the prophecy and the fulfillment of that prophecy being detailed in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, yet in Matthew's gospel, he says that this is fulfilled with the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. And so the question we have to ask is, is it messianic? Is this prophecy actually about the Messiah or is it not? And what I want to do is I want to look at a pros and cons list, basically. First, we're going to look through the different arguments that people use to suggest this is not messianic. And then I want to put some counter arguments where I say that we actually have reason to believe that it probably is, uh, even if it doesn't seem like that at first glance. The first thing that people will point out, and this goes back to the Hebrew word that I mentioned earlier, is the word Alma. Because what people will point out is that in Hebrew, there is already a word for virgin, and that word is betula. And whenever you look throughout the Hebrew Old Testament, this is the word most often used to describe virgins. Whereas the word Alma more directly just means young woman. And so it might not even necessarily indicate that this woman is a virgin. It is simply a young woman who gives birth. So the word Alma typically refers to a young woman who is unmarried. She's not necessarily a virgin. And I'm just going to tell you, that is admittedly a true statement, but it might be more nuanced than that, and we'll come back to that. But people point out that if Isaiah was really wanting to communicate that this was a miraculous event about a virgin giving birth, there is a better Hebrew word that he could have used to communicate this. People will also point out that, like I already mentioned, this was seemingly already fulfilled in Isaiah chapter 8 during the time period of Assyria. Right? Because it's very clearly indicated that the birth of this child is associated with Israel, Aram, and Assyria, none of whom are major players at the time we arrive at Christ. And so people will point out that it seems like the prophecy was already fulfilled, and so how can you suggest that this is ultimately about the Messiah? And then another thing that people point out is that it doesn't naturally read as messianic, right? Uh, even whenever you're reading about this child, I mean, some people have tried to give it a messianic overtone, but even then they have... They are forced to say that it's somebody, maybe like Hezekiah or somebody. Uh, that's some like some people, if they're saying it's not Meher Shalal Hashbaz, Isaiah's son, they'll suggest that maybe this is talking about Hezekiah, but Hezekiah wasn't the Messiah, right? And so you face some difficulties here because nobody's going to just read Isaiah chapter 7 and immediately conclude that this is about the Messiah because it doesn't immediately read that way. And so to give people, to give credit where credit's due, this doesn't overtly read as a messianic prophecy. However, does that mean that we have no reason to think that it is one? Let me give some counter arguments. 
Firstly, uh, like I kind of already pointed out, the Hebrew word Alma might not be the Hebrew word for virgin, but it does refer to an unmarried woman who has never had children, right? And so typically this would be a virgin. And whenever you read about Almas showing up in the rest of the Hebrew Bible, the solution to an Alma like, like the thing that makes an Alma not an Alma anymore is whenever she gets married and has a kid, right? And that is what makes her no longer an Alma. And so this is a woman who doesn't have kids. And so even if the word Alma doesn't necessarily refer to a virgin, it's not the word you would typically associate with virgin, it still stands that in every occurrence that it shows up, this is a woman who can't have kids because she's young and unmarried, right? And so it is still a person who is known for not having children, right? So it might not be the word for virgin. If anything, though, it is accentuating it even more because it's not simply about her not having sex. It's about a girl who literally is incapable of having kids because she is young and unmarried, right? And so I would say that that actually accentuates it even more. Uh, and then I guess you would just suggest here, because you do have to kind of reconcile this, um, because the only time where you have an Alma giving birth would therefore be in Isaiah chapter 8 here, uh, where you have the prophetess giving birth. But I guess that would seem to suggest that maybe Isaiah got married to the prophetess, in which case you have to explain away the confusing aspect of him already having a child before that, she or Joshua, I don't know. There's some confusing stuff going on here no matter what. Uh, but in all other occurrences of this Hebrew word Alma, it always referred to an unmarried woman who has never had kids. And so the emphasis is that she's young and that she doesn't have kids. And so the fact that she is having kids is pretty remarkable, right? Uh, and so there is something interesting going on there. And whenever people suggest that the word Alma doesn't directly denote virgin, they're overstating their case a little bit. Uh, and that's just where you have to get kind of technical and look into the Hebrew there. Uh, but another thing that is worth pointing out that a lot of scholars have pointed out is that all messianic prophecies in Isaiah chapters 1 through 12 are written in the context of Assyria. For instance, if you go a little bit further on and you go to Isaiah chapter 11 and it talks about a shoot arising from the shoot of like uh, um, a shoot arising from the stump of Jesse, practically everybody recognizes that that is a messianic prophecy, not just Christians, but Jewish people as well. But if you look at the surrounding context, all of it is stated as being in the context of Assyria, whereas nobody's going to assert, like assert that the Messiah can only show up with it when Assyria was there, because guess what? Assyria is long gone. And so there is this precedent being established in the context of Isaiah and also other surrounding biblical prophecies that the name Assyria in that, like, sometimes the enemies of Israel might be more broadly speaking of more enemies than just that one particular person. For instance, you can understand this if you go to the book of Revelation. Whenever the book of Revelation talks about Babylon, we're not supposed to assume that it is literally just a rejuvenated Babylonian empire. The idea is that there's going to be a future enemy that is comparable to Babylon that will arise, right? And so it uses the terminology that would be familiar to the people at the time period but it's referencing something different. And so people have pointed out that even though these prophecies are set within the context of Israel and Aram and Assyria, they might not only be referencing them, they might just be referencing counterparts that might show up in the future and look a lot like them, right? And so that's just something that we need to recognize is that it might, like there are other places in Isaiah chapters one through 12 where prophecies are overtly messianic, but they're still set within the same context. So all because something seems to be set during the time period of Assyria doesn't necessarily mean that it's limited to that. And then this is something else I want to highlight here. 
And this, I think, is something that we really, like, if you understand this, it'll make things a lot clearer. Whenever you look at the Septuagint version of this um, passage, which is the Greek version of it that was translated in between the time of the Old Testament, New Testament, the Septuagint anticipates some sort of greater fulfillment about this. Why do I suggest that? Because despite the fact that we already had a temporary short-term fulfillment of this passage in Isaiah chapter 8, whenever the Septuagint authors translated this from Hebrew to Greek, they stopped using the Hebrew word Alma, and when they translated it to Greek, they translated it to the Greek word Parthenos, which does mean virgin, and it clearly means virgin. And so despite the fact that we already have this short-term fulfillment in Isaiah chapter 8, Whenever the Septuagint translators translated this, there was something about how they were translating it at that time period that inclined them to translate this even stronger so that it was the word for virgin. And that's the version that Matthew is quoting whenever he's quoting and he's defending the fact that Jesus is this ultimate Messiah. And so that's just something we have to wrestle through and understand there is that even the people prior to Jesus seemed to be looking at this passage and understanding that there was more going on there than simply just Meher Shalal Hashbaz being born to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 8. Something else is going on there. And I think that you can also understand this whenever you look back at the passage and you see that the sign isn't simply given to Ahaz, but it's more broadly given to the house of David as a whole. And you have to understand that a lot of the times prophecies don't just have short-term fulfillments, they also have long-term fulfillments as well. Short-term fulfillments to the immediate audience and then long-term, grander, greater, ultimate fulfillments in the broader scope of history. And so I think that we can admit that whenever you first read through Isaiah chapter 7, you might not immediately think that this is a messianic prophecy. But later on, if you're Matthew or the other apostles, and you're seeing that Jesus was born of a virgin, you're probably going to search the scriptures and see if there was anything that could indicate that something like this is possible. And sure enough, there's a passage that says the virgin will give birth to a son, and then they can go back and they can look and say, how does this reconcile with what we encountered with Jesus? And so that makes us look at Matthew's context now, and we need to see how he is using his story that he's telling to communicate this as the ultimate fulfillment of this passage. And so let's just recap the context of Matthew's gospel, right? The betrothed Virgin Mary conceives a son by the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, is told in a dream that the story is true and that this child has come to save his people from their sins. Thirdly, Matthew cites these offense as fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, accentuating that Joseph did not sleep with Mary until after the child was born. Fourthly, the wicked king Herod feigns righteousness, acting as though he intends to go and worship the newborn king, when in reality, like Ahaz, he has rejected the sign. Do you see that parallel there? You can see how Matthew might find some parallels between the story of Isaiah and Ahaz and the people of Israel and Jesus in regards to King Herod, right? And so there are some parallels here, and it seems like Matthew is using the story in Isaiah and finding a nice parallel with what's going on with Jesus. And so let's look at how Matthew uses the prophecy, and then we'll move on to the other ones. And the other ones aren't nearly as complex, so we'll be able to go through those a little bit quicker. This is how Matthew is using the prophecy as best I can discern in his gospel. Firstly, he's demonstrating that Jesus is the greater fulfillment of this prophecy, Right? Back in Isaiah's time, there was a young woman who was before unmarried who gave birth to a son. Right, This is the prophetess who gave birth to Mahershala Hashbaz. Right? But now we have a literal virgin 
giving birth to a child who was literally God with us. Meher Shalal Hashbaz, keep in mind, he just represented the fact that God was still with them. But now we have a literal virgin who has never slept with a man, who is now giving birth to a literal child who is literally God in the flesh. And so Jesus is actually the greater ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. He was the ultimate greater sign given not merely to Ahaz, but to the entire house of David that God had not abandoned them. I talked about this when we went through the story, but this is during a time period in Israel where they are surrounded by enemies who are oppressing them and forcing themselves upon them. And God is not dwelling with them in the temple anymore, right? And so the fact that they are alone here, they feel abandoned by God, they're waiting for the Messiah, he hasn't shown up, they need this sign even more than Ahaz did, right? Ahaz was a wicked king who had brought a lot of this stuff upon himself, yet God still gave him a sign that he was still with him. How much more did these people need this sign? And so this is the greater fulfillment given not just to Ahaz, but to the house of David in general, that even though there was no th throne established in Israel and there was no king on that throne other than Herod the Great, who was not a legitimate king, even though David's heir was not on the throne, God had not abandoned them. He was still with them. And Jesus is that greater fulfillment. Secondly, Jesus is the greater sign. He has not come to deliver his people from Aram or from Israel, but from their sins. This is what the angel communicates to Joseph in his dream. On the other hand, those who reject this sign will have a lot more to fear than simply Assyria, right? There is going to be judgment coming for those who ultimately reject this sign. Just like Ahaz had to recognize that there was judgment for rejecting a sign and for testing God's patience, so too those in Israel who reject Jesus will be facing the greater punishment. However, Jesus is the sign that God is with them, here to deliver them not from Aram or from Israel, but from their sins. And thirdly, Jesus is the greater Emmanuel. God's presence had arrived in a greater manner than ever before. Depending upon one's faith, this could be either comforting or condemning because if God's presence is here and you've been faithful to him, that's really good news. Uh, but if God's presence is here and you're not faithful to him, if you're somebody like Ahaz, then judgment is coming. And for people like King Herod, judgment is coming. We see Gentiles come to welcome Jesus, right? Magi come to him and they honor him because their faith is in him. Whereas Herod, who is exactly like Ahaz, he is the wicked king who is testing God's patience, he rejects Jesus, right? And so I'll admit that Isaiah chapter 7, when you're first reading through it, might not read as overtly messianic. However, I think this is one of those instances where in hindsight, Matthew and the apostles, they see and they hear the story about Jesus being born of a virgin and they go search the scriptures and they say, sure enough, that prophecy is there and Jesus is the greater fulfillment, the greater sign, the greater Emmanuel. So I think that that's how we can reconcile what's going on in Isaiah chapter 7. But let's move on to our second prophecy, which is a lot more straightforward. When we get to chapter 2 uh, and King Herod hears about this king who's been born, uh, he turns to the chief priests and the scribes and he asks them, where's the Messiah supposed to be born at? And the wise men said to him, um, actually, sorry, I put the wise men there. This is supposed to say the chief priests and the scribes. And the chief priests and scribes said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. So this is quoting from Micah chapter 5, but I want to start in Micah chapter 4 at the very end of it. We'll read through it and then we'll summarize the context. Now, why do you make a loud shout? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? That writhing has taken hold of you like a woman in childbirth. Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city 
dwell in the field and go to Babylon. There you will be delivered. There Yahweh will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. But now many nations have been assembled against you who say, let her be polluted and let our eyes behold Zion in triumph. But they do not know the thoughts of Yahweh and they do not understand his counsel. For he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion. For your horn I will make iron, and your hooves I will make bronze, that though you may be pulverized, that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to Yahweh their greedy gain unto destruction, and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient of days. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in childbirth has born a child. Then the remainder of his brothers will return to the sons of Israel. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one will be peace. When the Assyrian enters our land, when he treads on our citadels, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. And they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he enters our land and when he treads within our borders. All right, so I read a whole lot right there, but the main thing you need to pick up here is that God promises the people of Judah, and this is this is Micah writing around the same time as Isaiah, keep in mind. Uh, really, all three of the ones that we're talking about today are written around the same time period. Micah is writing to the people of Judah, and through God, he is speaking and he is pronouncing these judgments that are going to come upon them, to where eventually their kings are going to be taken away and they're going to be destroyed. But eventually there will be this ultimate king who shows up, born in Bethlehem, who will deliver them. And this is probably, of the three that we're covering today, this is the one that is the most easily overtly messianic, hence why the chief priests and the scribes were so quick to be like, yeah, this is where the Messiah is going to be born. So let's just summarize the context. Around the same time as Isaiah was prophesying, Micah warned Judah that God had let their leaders fall because soon they will all go to exile in Babylon, right? So this is actually progressing the same thought that Isaiah had mentioned, how God was eventually going to destroy them. And Isaiah had talked about how Assyria was going to show up, but Micah here is revealing that it's not even going to be Assyria who's their ultimate undoing. Eventually, that's actually going to be Babylon, and God is letting their leaders fall to the wayside. God is removing their kings from amongst them because he's preparing them for ultimate destruction by Babylon. Nations were currently gathering to destroy Judah, unaware that God was employing them to discipline his people and ultimately bring them back to him. Right? So whenever you get to those verses 11 through 13 at the end of chapter 4, Micah explains that God has allowed all these nations to gather together and they are currently laying siege to the land and they are currently trying to destroy them, totally unaware of the fact that they are actually being used as vessels for God, wherein God is disciplining his people and ultimately preparing to send them into exile so that in the long term he can bring them back to him. He called Judah to gather for battle, knowing that they will be humiliated, right? Their king will be destroyed. Their kingdom will be removed. They're going to be destroyed. But still, he says, gather your troops, get ready for battle. But in the midst of that humiliation, after this, the long-anticipated king of Israel will be born in Bethlehem. 
That's the prophecy that is being cited by the chief priests and the scribes. And this, like I said, is the most overtly messianic passage that we have in all of this. God will be distant from Israel until the arrival of this king who will bring his people back to God and shepherd his people in majesty, ushering in peace. So you've got to realize that this is both comforting and scary for the people at Micah's time period, right? Because they're being told, gather your troops, you're about to fight a battle, you're going to be humiliated, you're going to be taken captive, you're going to go into captivity in Babylon, and I'm going to feel distant for a long time. But eventually, the Messiah will show up, and he will be the ones who he will be the one who truly delivers his people from exile. That's what this whole prophecy is about. This king will deliver the people from Assyria, which is interesting because we just talked about this in the book of Isaiah, how the name Assyria might not just be referencing Assyria in and of itself. And that actually makes a lot more sense here because Babylon is after Assyria, right? So Assyria kind of is out of the way and Babylon swoops in and they do some stuff. And so the fact that this guy is going to show up after their exile in Babylon and destroy Assyria would seem to imply that this Messiah isn't actually taking out Assyria as the people knew it at that time period, but actually a greater future Assyria-like enemy. And so that actually seems to be talking about the ultimate judgment at the end of days. So is this messianic? I think this is probably the easiest one for us to answer. The text itself is fairly clearly messianic, describing the coming one as a ruler in Israel who was born in the city of David and whose goings forth are from everlasting from the ancient of days, right? It's very clearly a messianic prophecy. It's not talking about just any king. This is a king that has been promised for a long, long time. And the scribes within Herod's court demonstrate that they evidently interpret it as being messianic. And so Matthew isn't alone here, right? And to be fair, Matthew never actually even claims this is messianic. This is what the scribes themselves were claiming. But I think Matthew, by quoting it, is giving his seal of approval and saying, yes, they were correct. And so, yes, this one is very clearly messianic, but I still want to go deeper into this. And I want to talk about how Matthew uses this in his context. So in Matthew's context, the Magi arrive in Jerusalem seeking out the newborn king of the Jews. Herod interprets this as a reference to the Messiah and asks his chief priests and scribes where the Messiah was supposed to be born. Herod's men cite this prophecy as identifying the location of his birth. The Magi locate the child in Bethlehem in accordance with the prophecy, and then seeking to kill the Christ, Herod has the children in the region murdered, right? And so this prophecy is actually very central in a lot that goes on here. Uh, in fact, this prophecy is actually central in leading to the fulfillment of another prophecy, because it's only Herod's awareness that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem that leads him to eventually have all the children murdered, which leads to the fulfillment of another prophecy, which we're going to talk about next week. Uh, but yeah, so there is how Matthew uses this in his context, but let me specifically talk about what he's communicating through quoting this prophecy right now. So Matthew's uses of the prophecy, pretty straightforward. Through the testimony of Jerusalem's leading priests and scribes, Matthew identifies Jesus as the long-awaited mighty Messiah who was born in the town of David and arrives to shepherd and restore his people, destroying their enemies and ushering in peace. Perhaps even more than the Isaiah 7 passage, this is the one that would have resonated with his audience. Because guess what? We see that during King Herod's time, the chief priests and the scribes recognized that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. Which means that it's not a big hop, skip, and a jump for us to believe that during Matthew's time period, whenever he's writing during the early years of the church, that the Jewish people thought the same thing. Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. So Matthew just listed out the fact that Jesus had the right credentials. He was born of the right family line to be the Messiah. Probably the next question that people would have been wondering was, well, was he born in Bethlehem? And he's going to say, 
Yes, he was. Therefore, he fulfilled that prophecy. But that's not the only prophecy he fulfilled. Go back to Isaiah chapter 7. Remember when it talked about being born of a virgin? That was also about him too, right? And so Matthew is really just unleashing one argument after another, demonstrating the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And this one is probably one of the most clear messianic prophecies in the entire Old Testament, because it makes it very clear that this is about the long-awaited future king who will shepherd God's people and reign in a time of peace, right? And so that's exactly what Matthew is asserting here, which leads us to the final prophecy I want to cover today, which is also a kind of Another difficult one, but I'm hopefully going to explain that it's not as difficult as we might be inclined to think that it is. In chapter 2, verse 15, uh, this is talking about Joseph, Mary, and Jesus going down to Egypt, and it says, And he remained there until the death of Herod, in order that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. This is reference to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. We're going to start by reading in Hosea chapter 10. And Ephraim, and once again, Ephraim is a reference to the northern kingdom of Israel because um, whereas Micah and Isaiah were prophets to the southern kingdom of Judah, Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. And Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, but I will come over her fair neck with a yoke. I will harness Ephraim. Judah will plow. Jacob will harrow for himself. Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with loving kindness. Break up your fallow ground. Indeed, it is time to seek Yahweh until he comes and rains righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of deception. Because you have trusted in your way, in your abundant warriors, therefore a rumbling will arise among your people and all your fortifications will be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed in pieces with their children, thus it will be done to you at Bethel because of your evils of evils. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely ruined. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to graven images. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. Uh, just keep in mind the imagery there, right? God is the one who lifts the yoke from Ephraim. Jesus is going to say to take his yoke upon them because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king because they refused to return to me. And the sword will whirl against their cities and will consume their gate bars and devour them because of their counsels. So my people are hung up on turning from me. Though they call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I give you over to be like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are stirred. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not make Ephraim a ruin again. For I am a God and not man, the Holy One in your midst and I will not come in wrath. They will walk after Yahweh. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. All right, so kind of like with the Micah passage, I read a lot of that, but that's because I'm trying to get us to this video a little bit quicker. Let's summarize the context here. While Isaiah and Micah were prophesying to Judah, Hosea warned Israel that their freedom is coming to an end. They're about to be taken into captivity. And this is something that I already communicated. Um, the reason I'm covering these three passages today is because 
these three were actually all written around the same time period. So it's interesting that Matthew quotes three prophecies that were written at the same time period, right? Isaiah and Micah were writing to the people of Judah uh, in the 700s BC, and Hosea is writing to the people of Israel in the 700s BC. The issue for the people of Israel during this time period is that they're about to be destroyed by the Assyrians, right? The Assyrians are a huge force. They are coming in there. That's why they're also a threat to the people of Judah. But the people of Judah won't be destroyed by them, right? They're going to be destroyed by the Babylonians about 150 years later. Israel, however, is going to be destroyed by the Assyrians and taken into captivity. And that's exactly what Hosea is warning people about right here. He warns them that their freedom is coming to an end because they're about to be taken into captivity. And God pleads with them to soften their hearts and cease choosing sin. He says, break up your fallow ground, right? Come back to me. He's asking them to just repent so that he doesn't have to destroy them in the way that he's planning on doing it. He just asks them, soften their hearts, reap righteousness, right? Do what is right. And then he says, because of their idolatry, their sin, and their refusal to trust in God, their king will be taken from them at dawn. So the implications is not necessarily that Hosea is saying this the day before they're destroyed, but the idea is that it's very soon, right? The night is growing, and before morning comes, Israel will be destroyed, right? Their king will be taken from them. And ultimately, the king right there represents the entire kingdom, right? Because that's kind of what you have to realize for the entire Old Testament and arguably the New Testament. The kingdom is never going to be greater than the king, and therefore the king is a representative of the whole nation, right? The anointed one sitting on the throne is a representative of all the people, right? So whoever the king of Judah is, he represents all Judah. Whoever the king of Israel is, he represents all Israel, uh, which is actually crucial to understanding how Matthew's employing this passage in his quotation of it. Um, but yeah, so the king will be taken from them at dawn, implying that uh, the king actually... Interestingly, the king at this time period, I believe his name was Hosea, uh, which is actually Hosea, um, so it's the same as the prophet. But the king is going to be taken from them at dawn, aka their kingdom is going to be destroyed. Yahweh views Israel as a rebellious son who he freed from captivity in his youth, but who consistently rebelled against his loving advances. This is what we see at the beginning of chapter 11, right? So he has just given them this promise that they're about to be destroyed and almost in sorrow and in reflection, he reflects on their story and he reflects on how he views them as just this problematic son who he loves so dearly, but who's constantly rebelling. And the more that he loved them, the more that they turned to idolatry and the more that he cared for them, the more that they turned to sin and the more that he gave them commands to take care of them and tend to their needs, the more they rebelled against those commands and chose their own paths. As a result, they will return to captivity not in Egypt, but in Assyria, right? So he called them out of Egypt and he says, I'm not sending you back to Egypt. I'm sending you somewhere worse. I'm sending you to Assyria. At the same time, Yahweh feels he can't give up his people and he refuses to do so, promising to ultimately restore them. Some of the most heartbreaking words in the entire passage is when he says, but how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? It's almost like God himself is so torn up over what he has to do in order to discipline his child that he's like, I just can't give up on you because he knows that they deserve to be given up on. He knows that he has every right to abandon them and they couldn't get mad at him if he did. But he can't give up on them because there is people and there is children and he loves them. And so that's the original context of this. The question we have to ask is, is it messianic? Is this passage messianic? And I'm just going to point out in its original context, the text is not messianic in the way that we usually use the term. Rather, it is speaking about Israel as a whole, right? There's nothing in Hosea chapter 11, verse one, that would immediately make you think, hmm, that seems like that's about the Messiah, 
The one thing that might incline you to think that, and I've seen people use this argument, I just don't think that this is a good enough argument to come to the messianic conclusion, um, but people will point out that most often Israel is referred to as a daughter or is personified as a woman in relationship to God, right? It is a daughter or a bride. Very rarely is the land of Israel referred to as a son. At the same time, there are places in the Old Testament where it is referred to as a son, and even if this was the only occurrence of it, it's very clear in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, that we're talking about Israel, not simply the Messiah. But like I pointed out, the king represents the whole land, right? And so moving on, at the same time, Hosea chapter 10, verse 15, which is the last verse of chapter 10, the verse immediately preceding the one we just read, 11 chapter, chapter 11, verse 1, in that verse, it references the king of Israel as being a representative of the whole nation, right? This is what I was emphasizing a second ago. It says that at dawn, your king will be removed. And it is referring to the one person, the king, but by the king being removed, it is implying that the whole nation will be removed. And so, if the one person can represent the whole, then it follows that the whole can represent the one. And so, if you go from chapter 10, verse 15 to chapter 11, verse 1, you can say, okay, well, in that instance... The king of Israel represented all Israel. And so whenever it says out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, then out of like, then that means that Israel can also represent the king. And so you can't say that this is just about Israel, right? That's the main thing I'm saying here. I'm still not even arguing that it's messianic. I'm just saying that you can't say that is only about Israel because the preceding verse literally demonstrates that sometimes the king can represent the whole and the whole can represent the one, right? That's all I'm communicating there. Furthermore, from another perspective, technically the Messiah was called out of Egypt when Israel was called out of Egypt, right? So this is just me. This is an argument I've seen people suggest. Once again, I don't think it's necessarily a convincing argument, um, but it is technically true. Um, whenever God delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt during the Exodus, technically he did deliver the Messiah out of Egypt as well right? And technically, whenever he called the people of Israel, he was calling the people of Judah out of there. And one of those people was the great, 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 great grandson of Jesus, a uh, great grandfather of Jesus, sorry. Uh, and so some people point that out that technically, whenever it says out of Egypt, I called my son, maybe this isn't actually referring to the people of Israel at all. Maybe it is referring to the Messiah, but it still is referring to the Exodus event. I don't necessarily find that convincing, but I do see how that technically works, right? But in fact, I think that asking the question, is it messianic, might be missing the entire point altogether. Uh, I do think that these answers right here that I've put here are legitimate ways to make it work, but I think that there's actually an easier way to understand it, and it really goes back to taking those first two and combining them together, and it ties to what I've been saying about the book of Matthew this whole time is that Matthew is communicating that Jesus is the true Israel. He is walking through the footsteps of the history of Israel. And so even if this passage is about Israel, there's no reason it can't also be about Jesus. Because whenever Matthew's using the word fulfilled, it doesn't seem like he's specifically going and trying to find specific places in the Old Testament that are talking about the Messiah. And it's not just talking about prophecies in a predictive sense. It seems like Matthew is using the word fulfillment in the sense of Jesus is the greater fulfillment of this thing. So even if Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 wasn't predicting about something the Messiah would do in the future, that doesn't mean Jesus can't fulfill it 
if you're following what I'm saying there. He's fulfilling it in the sense of he is the greater Israel. He is living out Israel's history. And so, yes, the people of Israel live this out, but Jesus fulfilled it to an even greater degree because he came to truly deliver the people out of Egypt. Let me prove this by looking at Matthew's context, because if you look at his context here, this is where the context actually becomes crucial in understanding what Matthew's doing. First off, an angel of the Lord calls Joseph to flee to Egypt with Mary and Jesus, and Joseph responds in obedience. Notice where he's being called to go. He is being called to flee to Egypt. He's not being called to flee out of Egypt. He's being called to flee to Egypt. This is what Matthew cites. Um, it, it, Matthew cites this time in Egypt as the fulfillment of the prophecy, right? This is what he cites, right? It is not they're being called from Egypt that he cites the fulfillment of prophecy. Instead, it's they're being called to Egypt. He says that whenever they went to Egypt and stayed there until the death of Herod, that was what fulfilled the prophecy of Hosea of being called from Egypt. So if you just look at that, you'll notice that something interesting is going on there. And this is something that I talked about in the last week's video. Meanwhile, the power-hungry Herod has all the children in the surrounding region murdered in an attempt to keep his throne. That sounds a lot like the Pharaoh in Egypt. And so if you're tracking with me, it seems like it's not the location of Egypt that matters as much, other than the fact that it's the bitter irony that rather than the people of Israel going out of Egypt to the promised land, you actually have the true Israel escaping the promised land to go to Egypt because Israel itself has become the new Egypt and King Herod is the new Pharaoh. After Herod dies, Joseph is told to return to Israel and he obeys. And if you understand those things in that order and you understand where Matthew cites this, you'll understand how Matthew uses this prophecy. Because you would expect Matthew to cite the prophecy on that last point whenever they get up and leave Egypt. But that's not where Matthew does it. He doesn't say that, like, whenever Joseph and them get up and leave Egypt, you would expect him to say, this was done in order to fulfill the prophecy out of Egypt I called my son. That's not where Matthew cites it. He cites it when they go to Egypt. So, this is how I'm going to argue Matthew uses this prophecy. Jesus, as Messianic king and representative of the true Israel, is living out Israel's history. In a dark twist, Israel has become the new Egypt with Jesus, the true Israel, having to escape from Israel to Egypt in order to escape the clutches of a power-hungry tyrant. So you see how he's literally living out their history. Just as Hosea cited the Exodus event as grounds for Israel's coming judgment due to their rebellion, so too Jesus' escape from Egypt, Israel, stands as an indictment against Israel. Through rejecting their true king, they bring judgment upon themselves. This is the most important thing. This and the next point are the most important things that I'm trying to communicate here. Because if you understand the original context of Hosea's passage, then you as a Jewish reader of this gospel are understanding Matthew's message loud and clear. Egypt has become better than Israel. Israel is the new Egypt. The one sitting on the throne of Israel is the new Pharaoh who is opposed to God's anointed people, God's anointed one, and Jesus has to escape in order to ultimately deliver the people, right? And so, if you're a Jewish person reading this, you know exactly the context of Hosea, right? God cites the fact that he called his people out of Egypt in order to voice his sadness over the fact that they continue to rebel, right? Hosea chapter 11, verse one, out of Egypt, I called my son. You keep reading the passage. He talks about how sad it is that they continue to rebel despite all that he's done for them, right? That's exactly what Matthew is communicating to the people of Israel. So too, Jesus' escape from 
Israel is an indictment against Israel, just as God's calling them out of Egypt in the Exodus is an indictment against Israel at the time period, right? He says, guys, I took you out of bondage, yet you keep rebelling against me. Therefore, I'm going to judge you. In the same way, Jesus having to flee from Israel to Egypt is an indictment against the people of Israel because their king has been born to them and they immediately reject him and immediately try to kill him. And through rejecting their true king, they bring judgment upon themselves. Ironically, the first person to try to kill Jesus was a ruler sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. Jesus is going to escape death at this point. 33 and a half years though, 33 and a half years later though, he's going to come back to Jerusalem and a ruler sitting on the throne is going to have him killed. And it's not just the Romans, it's the Jews as well, right? And so Jerusalem has rejected their king. That is the message right here, right? By Jesus having to escape and flee to Egypt, you get to see that Israel has become far worse than Egypt ever was. They have rejected their own king, and therefore, if they don't repent, they're bringing judgment upon themselves. Also, just as Hosea went on to describe God's anguished pursuit of his rebellious people, once again, that phrase, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? Just as Hosea went on to describe God's anguished pursuit of his rebellious people, so too Jesus' arrival on earth represents the culmination of that relentless love. Though Israel rejects him, he refuses to give them up, right? And so, by Jesus escaping to Egypt, and by Israel being pronounced as the new Egypt in Matthew's gospel, you have two things being communicated here, one of which is negative and one of which is positive. On one hand, you have the people of Israel who continue to rebel against God, despite all that he's done against them, and if they continue to rebel, judgment is coming, and it's going to be a lot worse than Assyria. On the other hand, God can't give them up, and despite the fact that they continue to rebel, and despite the fact that they continue to reject him, and despite the fact that they continue to raise up idols against him, and in place of him, he's not going to give them up, and he is going to ultimately deliver his people. He's going to discipline them. He's going to chastise them, but eventually they will be delivered and their king will reign over them. And so you have this bad thing and this good thing working in unison together. And only in understanding the context of Hosea chapter 11, will you understand this message? Usually as modern readers of the New Testament, we miss this message entirely because we usually don't study the Old Testament that much. But for a Jewish reader in the first century, they are getting this message loud and clear. Israel is being indicted for their sins and being called to repent because God will judge them if they don't. But ultimately, they're called to put their faith in the fact that God will not give up his people. And even though they deserve to be given up, he's not going to, and he's going to relentlessly pursue them even so far as sending his son in the flesh to live and ultimately die for them. That's the message being communicated right here. To close off this video, I actually want to quote from Peter J. Lightheart's book, Jesus as Israel. I actually quoted from this uh, a few weeks ago in one of our videos, uh, but he's got a lot of really good stuff that's really just tracing the idea of Jesus as Israel. So if you want to go more deeply into this uh, idea, just go read his book. But this is what he says about this whole thing. Jesus is the son who comes out of Egypt. He is the true Israel who lives Israel's history. Jesus as the true Israel also expresses the father's longing for Ephraim, his sympathy, the churning of his heart. The son's arrival is the result of this divine anguish, this inner churning of the father. Matthew is showing us that the God of Israel cannot give up on his people. Though some in Israel will be destroyed, in the end, all Israel will be saved. But the fulfillment is not straightforward. It is ironic. 
As Israel leaves Egypt at night, so Joseph leaves Israel by night. And this confirms that Matthew sees Israel as the new Egypt. When he quotes Hosea 11.1, he is making the same point. Israel was Yahweh's firstborn, called out of Egypt. Jesus, the true faithful Israel, the son of Yahweh, is called from the threatening world of Herod's kingdom. In order for Yahweh to fulfill his yearnings in bringing Israel from Egypt, he must bring Israel out of Israel. Just reflect on that for a second. He must bring Israel out of Israel. He must call Israel, Jesus, his son, from the Egypt of Herod's kingdom. This is the way that the ultimate fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy will be accomplished. Salvation comes when the father calls his son from Egypt. The new exodus occurs when Jesus leads his people out. And so, in this crude twist, Israel has to be called from Israel in order to save Israel. If the people of Israel want to be saved, and once again, this is what the Jewish readers would have understood by Matthew's choice of quoting this right here. If the Jewish readers want to be saved, they have to separate themselves from the current system that is established in Israel, right? Because right now, they're relying on their works. They're relying on their lineage. They can't do that. That's going to be his point when we get to chapter 3 and John the Baptist is rebuking them, right? You call yourselves children of Abraham, but that's not enough. You need to live by faith, right? In order for Israel to be saved, Israel needs to be removed from Israel, just like Jesus was right here. That being said, that's all I've got for y'all today. Once again, thank y'all so much for listening in, and I just want to remind you that if you want more biblical content like this, I have plenty more on the Now Let's Be Honest YouTube channel. Also, if you don't mind, leaving an honest rating and review for this podcast would be a super huge help for helping spread the word. Until next time, I've been David Tate, this has been Now Let's Be Honest, and I look forward to moving further along in our study next week. Be sure to keep a smile on your face, and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.